open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah chapter 64, and it's a prayer for help. A prayer for help. This chapter continues the prayer for help from those who are longing for God's presence in their life. And you know, if you're really a child of God, you can't live without these strong feelings for God in your prayers. This is the remnant's prayer for Christ to deliver them when he returns. And Isaiah is speaking for the believing remnant of Israel in that future day. And he's using the past tense again here, which is called a prophetic tense. In other words, God sees this chapter. He sees what's being prayed for here as already taking place. It's already taken place. And he gives the prophecy to Isaiah from the other side. He's looking back at the event as if Jesus has already returned. And because God said he is and we know he is, it's as good as done. In other words, again, God is looking back and giving this prophecy, looking as if it had already, as Jesus had already returned. Isaiah here is pleading with God. Just like the remnant of Israel will do in the day of the great tribulation period. When Jesus returns to the earth physically and and puts the end to the battle of Armageddon. This scripture isn't written to us. Okay? The church isn't in view here of what Isaiah is writing. It's given to the remnant of Israel. But as believers, we can relate to them. Because our prayer today should be for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. But we can see here that Isaiah is predicting what Israel's prayer will be during the Great Tribulation period. So let's begin in chapter 64 with verses 1 through 3. And Isaiah says, Oh, that you, speaking to God, Oh, that you would rend the heavens. The word rend means to tear. Oh, that you, God, would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. As fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down, the mountains shook at your presence. In Isaiah 63, 15, Isaiah asks God to look down. From his glorious home in heaven. Here in verse 1. He asks God to come down. To come down. But with God. As we know. There is no going up and down like a yo-yo. You know he's not going up and then coming down. Because again. uh, God is everywhere. He's everywhere at all times. He's omnipresent. The psalmist said in Psalm 139. Verses 7 through 10. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. 1 Kings 8, 27, it says, Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. There's nowhere you can go where God is not there. We can't hide from him. We can't, we, we, we can't get away from him. So asking God to come down is obviously a figure of speech, but it points to a, 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 a real life, a true life reality. What Isaiah is really asking for is that they want to feel the presence of God. They want to feel his presence. 
And the word presence is found three times in verses 1 through 3. The psalmist said in Psalm 84, 1 and 2, he said, How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. He says, My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. He said, my soul longs. That means to become weak, even faints. That means to be consumed by this desire to be in the presence of the Lord. You know, his heart and his flesh cried out for the living God. So for the psalmist, it wasn't about the ceremonies in the house of God. It wasn't about the singing. Not that he's putting that down. He's not at all. But it's not about the ceremonies. It's not about the singing. It's not about the building. Isaiah, uh, the psalmist wanted to know that he was in the presence of the living God. Now, why do they want to feel God's presence? Because when he comes down, there was lightning and thundering on the mountains. And they shook greatly. In Exodus 19, 16 and 19, we read that the, you know, uh, that, that, that the, thund- the mountains shook. The mountains shook when God came down. And like verse 2 here, it says, you know, like, like a fire, you consume everything in its path. You, you know, you, you cause water to boil. And then Isaiah basically says, what I'm talking about is let God come down again and show his awesome power to the heathens. It says here, they don't tremble. They mock God. They deny God. They reject God. But one day when he comes again, they're going to tremble. Right now, there's no trembling by the heathen. Let God make his enemies know, make himself known to his enemies. Those, those who trust in their idols, in their earthly pleasures. He said, let them see what the living God of Israel can do. So the nations tremble before him. So Isaiah is talking about God getting involved. He's talking about God shaking up this world and changing his enemies into those who worship him. But Isaiah isn't just talking about this, which he, he wants so badly. Look at the first word out of his mouth there in verse 1. It's, oh, and, it's, and what follows is a prayer. Oh, that you, God, would rend or tear open the heavens. All right? So you look at the first word out of his mouth, oh, in verse 1, and starts to pray. And then the exclamation point, notice at the end of verse 2, that the nations may tremble at your presence. So Isaiah isn't just wishing and hoping and crossing his fingers. He's praying with passion for the good of Jerusalem. And he's not going to remain quiet until Jerusalem's delivered. Isaiah said he's not going to rest or let God rest until God's people are, are praised all through the earth. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation like a lamp that burns, he said in Isaiah 62.1. And then when he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth, Isaiah 62.7. So Isaiah is concerned about something more important than himself here. Nothing's going to make Isaiah happier than to see God come down to earth. Now this, this is a great lesson on how to pray. We don't learn to pray by listening to people pray. We don't learn to pray by studying how to pray. We can learn how to pray by reading the Bible and doing it. George Whitfield, great evangelist in the 1800s. His success in his evangelistic ministry was plainly traceable to two causes. 
and they couldn't be separated from, uh, uh, from them as direct effects. Namely, his usual prayerfulness and his habit of reading the Bible on his knees. It says, and this is from uh, um, George Mueller's book, who, who George Mueller copied this pattern of George Whitfield. George, George Mueller also from, learned from George Whitfield to read the Bible on his knees while he was praying. George Whitfield, the great evangelist, had learned that first lesson in service is his own utter nothingness and, nothingness and helplessness. That he was nothing and he could do nothing without God. And we need to really believe that. We are nothing before God and we are helpless without God and we can do nothing without God. God wants us to pray with boldness and he wants us to pray with passion for the kingdom of God to grow. And that's what Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew 6, 19 and 13. And before we pray for our own daily needs, we're to pray or we're taught to pray by Christ for God's kingdom to come. Listen to to this, and again, it's the first part of Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. Jesus said, in this manner, therefore pray. And he begins, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Begins with worship. And he says, your kingdom come. Your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And then he says, pray for your needs. Give us this day our daily needs. But you see, we're to pray for God's kingdom to come. But I can't pray, God, your kingdom, your kingdom come until my kingdom goes. You see, God isn't going to share his kingdom with anybody. And there can't be two thrones and there can't be two kings. God can't sit on the throne of my heart and I also sit on the throne of my heart and, and rule my own life. God also wants us to tell him about everything that we need. God wants to know everything that we need. There's nothing too small. There's nothing too great that God doesn't doesn't care about in our life. We need to tell him everything. And if it matters to you, it matters to God. It matters to God. And Peter said, cast all your care upon him because he cares for you. So God invites us to tell him everything because he's listening. He's always listening. You know, the psalmist said he never sleeps. He never slumbers. God doesn't need power naps. God is always available. You don't have to wait for him. You don't have to pick a number. You don't have to make an appointment. That being true, why do we overlook the main thing that God tells us to pray for? The power of the kingdom today. For his kingdom to come. First thing, you know, to pray for after worship. When was the last time you asked somebody to pray for God's kingdom to come? Or... They asked you to pray for God's kingdom to come. Or when did you, last time you saw or ever received a prayer request or wrote a prayer request for God's kingdom to come? Is what God wants the first thing that we ask for? Is God's priority our priority? Not usually. Because our prayers are usually a long list of the things that we need or we want. But we have to understand that all of our happiness is getting victory in the things of God. Do we want God to fall upon our land? Do we want God to fall upon our church? Man, that would be the best thing for us, for our family and for our city, for our nation. Again, looking at all the stuff that's happening in our nation today. 
What God wants us to have is a passion for his glory to be totally let loose. To come down into our lives in new ways. And, and like Isaiah said, oh, that you would rend the heavens. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and that you would come down. To come down into our lives in new ways. Like never before. We need God to come down and we need him to be in our midst today. We need him to walk among us. Lord, we need some work of your spirit. And we're thankful for your steadfast blessings that we receive every day. But these are desperate times and we really, we're really in bad shape today, Lord. We need more blessing than we've ever seen or needed before. We need the unmistakable, undeniable, in, undeniable intervention of God. Have you ever been in a worship service when you knew that God was in your presence? God can come down. And visit us in extraordinary power. Listen to 2 Chronicles 5.11-14 through 14, when the ark came back to the temple. It reads, Then the priests left the holy place. All the priests who were present had purified themselves, whether or not they were on, the, on duty that day. And the Levites who were musicians, Asaph, Heman, Jejuthun, and all their sons and brothers were dressed in fine linen robes and stood at the east side of the altar playing cymbals, lyres, and harps. They were joined by 120 priests who were playing trumpets. The trumpeters and singers performed together in unison to praise and give thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments, they raised their voices and praised the Lord with these words. Notice they were having a, an, an amazing worship service. And and they said, he is good. His faithful love endures forever. And it says, at that moment, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not continue their service because of the cloud. For the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple of God. Can you imagine? They were in one accord. They had one purpose in mind. And that was to praise God with all their heart, soul, and mind. And when they did that. The temple was filled with God's presence. They, the priests couldn't even go there and, and, and do what they, were, what they needed to do. In, Solomon, in 2 Chronicles 7, 1 through 3, when Solomon, Solomon dedicated the temple, listen to what it says. When Solomon had finished praying, all right, he's dedicating the temple. When he finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, uh, I'm sorry, and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord. Again, he came down. When the ark came back to the temple and they were praising him for that, when, when they were dedicating the temple and praising him for that, God came down. Filled the temple with his glorious presence. And the people fell down, bowed their faces to the ground, and they worshiped him. We need to know and understand that much of American Christianity today is below par, mediocre. What's the standard? The book of Acts. The book of Acts. There are churches here and, and there around the world that are growing in God's power and grace. But as a whole, 
we can see American Christianity is drifting into history without any significance. And they're getting caught up in all of the latest social movements. They're going along with the program. Mike Ferris, I was reading this in a Christian newsletter that I get every day. Mike Ferris, an American lawyer. He's the founder of the Homeschool Legal Defense Association and Patrick Henry College. He's the CEO of, he's the CEO of and general counsel for Alliance Defending Freedom. This is what he, he, he wrote. President Biden recently said to a gathering of teachers, they're all our children. They're not somebody else's children. They're like yours when they're in your classroom. They're not our children when they're in the classroom. They're the teachers. They're the activists. He said radical ideologues in our public schools reveal themselves indoctrinating young children in racist, anti-American revisions of history and confusing them about their bodies. This is immoral, destructive, discriminatory, unconstitutional. And these people don't care about what's best for our children or our rights as parents. And we need to stand up and we need to say enough is enough. You see, we've gotten here because I believe the church has been lax in our voting for the right principles and standing up and being a voice for our kids, our grandkids. We, the church, need to stand up to these deliberate abuses of power. And yet, we seem to be okay, not everybody, with our miserable condition. We're the Laodicean church in Revelation 3, 14 through 17. Jesus sees us way different than we see ourselves. Jesus said this, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. Notice, lukewarm, mediocrity. He said, I could wish you were cold or hot, one or the other. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, Jesus said, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Mediocrity makes Jesus nauseous. He said, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. He says, and you don't know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And we don't feel much of an urgency and longing. And, and many are, 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 are unaware, hardly aware of our, of our lukewarmness. And lost the vision of the prophets and the apostles. And we've forgotten that to whom much is given, much is required, Jesus said. Knowing that, what are we going to do to change things? We need to have the heart and the prayer of Isaiah here. Or continue as usual. And let's desire to have God come down upon us today. Let's be praying for that, focusing on that. Let's live and pray and die with that desire in our hearts. Not just go about being satisfied. Status quo. Warren Wiersbe said, without the glory of God, the temple was just another building. And without the presence of God, we are just like other people. Without God, we're just a social gathering. The things that God has done in the past teaches us a lot about things. 
And one thing is for sure, you can't put God in a box. He is, he is, he is just waiting for us to seek Him with all of our heart, soul, and mind. God doesn't always do things the same way as we've seen in the Scripture. He did things there because He didn't want to be put into a box. God is full of surprises. But he never does anything that's contrary to his attributes, to his character, to his nature, and he never contradicts his word. When Israel was boxed in at the Red Sea, do you think the Israelites were cool, calm, and collected and expected the Red Sea to open? No way. Listen to them in Exodus chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. It says, as Pharaoh approached the people of Israel, this, they've, they've left Egypt, they're on their way, Moses is leading them out of Egypt Pharaoh goes after them with the Egyptian army it says as Pharaoh approached the people of Israel looked up and they panicked when they saw the Egyptians overtaking them and they cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses notice why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt what have you done to us why did you make us leave Egypt didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. Leave us alone, Moses. We were better off in Egypt. Egypt is a type of the world. The whole world was stumbling in darkness with no way forward. What did God do? Brought the Savior into the world. The Savior of the world was born. Nobody expected that. We were condemned in our, in our inexcusable guilt. We had no excuse for our sin. We had no defense for our sin. What did God do? Our judge, Jesus Christ, endured our penalty at the cross. Nobody was expecting that either. Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. When that happened, all the hopes and expectations that he had promised the, the people, were, they were wiped out. They were buried with him. What did God do? He rose him from the dead. He went back to the Father and he started pouring out his spirit to make his murderers and his enemies his friends. Nobody was expecting that. And he's still surprising people today. Back in the 60s, maybe not all of you were there, but... I was. (laughs) Back in the 60s, we were stuck in the Vietnam War. The culture was going through a huge change, a big change. And our nation was terribly divided then. But then God came down. A lot of the old churches were like wineskins. But one little church at that time called Calvary Chapel was open to the work of the Holy Spirit. When Pastor Chuck and his wife Kay opened their hearts to the hippies who were lost, but they were searching. And God came down and he started saving young people all over the world. We are a part of that miraculous work. That was the last thing people expected. You see, it's time for us to pray Isaiah's prayer. Oh, God, that you would break out of heaven and come down. And God, that you would do something new, Lord. Something that we would never expect. Lord, blow our minds. Verse 4. 
For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. He says, Isaiah says, no man has ever heard or seen a God like you who works mightily for those who wait for him. You're not like our idols that that can't do anything. God, you act. You move. Verses 5 through 7. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry, or we have, uh, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquity, because of our sins. God meets those who rejoice, who enjoy doing good. God meets those who follow godly ways, those who are obedient. That's where you can find God. And you don't have to clean up your life. You don't have to hide from him. Because that's where God meets you, right where you are, if you're willing. You don't have to wait until everything is perfect in your life. Are God's ways your ways? Do you love the things that God loves? Do you hate the things that God hates? Is God the center of your life this evening? We're like the leper in the Old Testament who had to warn everybody that they were contagious and to stay away. To keep their distance because... You could contaminate their life. In verses 5 through 6 here, Isaiah said, But you have been angry with us because we're not godly. We are constant sinners. How can sinners like us be saved? He said, We're all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. And he's referring to menstrual cloths. He says, Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and and our sins sweep us away like the wind. Sin robs us of so much. Sin robs us of time. You know, from Egypt to Canaan was only an 11-day journey. It took them 40 years. 40 years. Why? Because they argued with God. They disobeyed God. They rebelled against God. Sin robs us of time. Sin takes away the power to resist sin. Sin breaks down our physical and spiritual strength. And we just don't last. Our sin takes control of us. And we go to places that we never meant to go to or wanted to go to. And we do things that we never meant to do or wanted to do. Sin takes away life. Satan never tells you that. He just tells you, hey, it's going to be good. Have fun. Be free. Do it. Go for it. But he never tells you the consequences. And we need to be delivered from ourselves more than anything else, anyone else. Because, again, that's why Jesus, why we need Jesus for all of our hope. And then after describing the condition that people had sunk down to here in verse 6, Isaiah continues describing their condition pointing out the desperate situation of God's people because verse 7 says God has hidden his face from them. We can't expect God to, 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 to visit us and to speak to us and to, and to, to do for us when, when we're, we're continuing in our sin. He 
He says we continue in our sin. And he's hidden his face from us. Sin clouds our judgment. We can't think straight. We can't see right. Sin causes us to forget God. And no one, it says here, was calling on the name of God in prayer and intercession. No one was asking for God's help and blessing, it says in verse 7. He says, there is no one who calls on your name. The people were so lazy, they would have had to put a... They would have had to put out a whole lot of effort themselves to strongly lay hold on God persistently, not letting go of him until he blessed them again. Prayer can be hard work. In Genesis 32, 24 through 26, remember when Jacob wrestled with God? It says, then Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. So he wrestled with God all night long. It says, now when he saw, when God saw that, that, that uh, Jacob did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip. And the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And Jacob said, no, uh, I'm sorry. And God said, let me go for the day breaks. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob would not let go of God until God blessed him. We can't let go until God blesses. Until he answers a prayer. And yet Isaiah says there was no one that tried to stir God up in this way. And when God hides his face from men, men don't have a desire to go to him. They can't go to him. The reality is that God's presence is completely lost. And this thought is supported by the final sentence there. Notice in in, in the end of verse 7, he says, You have consumed us because of our iniquities. You've consumed us because of our sins. Verse 8 and 9. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are potter. And all we are the work of your hand. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, we are all your people. God is our father. Why? Because he created us. But man lost that image when he sinned. You and I become sons of God only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Jesus said, I am the way. In John 1, 12 through 13, John says, But as many as received him, that is, as many as received Christ, to them Christ gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We are all the work of his hand. God is our creator. He's the potter. We are the clay. He's the one who creates. Now, a man that makes a vessel or a nice vase, you know, in a way, is the father of that, that creation. You know, you, you make a vase, you make a, 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 something out of clay or whatever you're making it out of. You are the father. You are the creator. You are the owner of that object that you are making. And God created us. He's the father. He's the owner of us. Man is the offspring of God. Why? Because God created him. He's the father, our father. But here's the difference. Not all men are born again sons of God. He's the father of all of us, but not all of us are sons of God. Born again sons of God. Paul is saying that because God has created us, we shouldn't make an image and say that it's a likeness of God. Because by doing that, we, tried, we would be trying to create God, and God has forbidden that. He said not to make any images of him. Now, if he's the potter, 
and we're the clay, and he makes us what he wants out of us, does that mean that, that we shouldn't pray? Is his sovereignty, the potter and clay relationship, a reason not to pray? No. But we can pray with confidence because of this very reason, because he is the potter and he is the clay. Now, if you were making out of something out of clay and you made a mistake with it, guess what? You can take that piece of clay and reshape it. You can remove the defects in it. God can do the same thing. We are the clay. He's the potter. He's able to touch us again. We need the touch of God again and again and again. And God has many ways of touching us. Isaiah is not asking for God not to discipline us. But that God wouldn't discipline us to the extent that we deserve. Because if God gave us what we deserve, none of us would be here. Because by God's own choice, we are, are his people and we are under his hand. Verse 10. Your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem a desolation. What's described here didn't happen in Isaiah's time. It happened not longer after Babylon came against Jerusalem. We see that in 2 Kings 25, 9 through 10. Verse 11. Our holy and beautiful temple where our fathers praise you is burned up with fire and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Isaiah writes here as if this has already happened. Notice he's, he's speaking in past tense. It's our holy and beautiful temple where our fathers praised us. It's burned up with fire and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Again, he's, he's writing this as if it's already happened. But it didn't happen until 100 years after Isaiah. The temple was destroyed. But at the same time that, that Jerusalem was destroyed. The Jews returned from Babylon to the literal ruins of Jerusalem. The temple had been burned down. Everything was in ruins. And that mattered because Jerusalem at that time represented the government of God on earth. But the Jews came back to this sad scene remembering how great it used to be. So they called out to God, Lord, look at this. Look at this, this mess. Look at these ruins. Look what we've been reduced to. He's telling him, he's saying, God, look, look at how your works have suffered. And they're saying, it's our fault. It's our fault. We deserve nothing, but we carry your name. You're our father. So we turn to you. He's saying, how can you ignore us, Lord? Because you've poured so much of yourself into us. Let's close with verse 12. So, will you restrain yourself because of these things? Speaking of verse 11. O Lord, will you hold your peace and act uh, and afflict us very severely? Isaiah finishes the chapter with the question, Lord, are you not bothered by all of this? Are you going to do nothing and make us suffer more than we can endure? The rest of Isaiah's prophecy is God's answer to this question. The greatest prayer that we can pray is for God to do his will. For God to do his glory, to do it in his way, by his gospel in our generation without holding back anything. That's a prayer that God loves to hear. Lord, your will be done. Lord, you be glorified. 
God lives to, loves to hear that prayer, and he's ready, and he's willing to answer that prayer. He's the one who gave us this prayer in the first place. God creates newness out of ruins. He's taken lives of people that, that have been messed up who, because of sin and bondage to sin, and he's created them, and he's made them new again. He's wiped away that sin. He's wiped away that past from his record book and he's created it as anew so that we can move forward and have a second, a second time, a second chance at life. Lord, don't hold back, Isaiah says. We humble ourselves before you, Lord, and we're asking you not to hold back. Lord, have your way. Do what you want with us. Do what you want to do. Do what you want to do with me, with all of us. But just let us be a part of what you're doing today. God God rejected Israel only after they rejected him. Now, it didn't change God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It didn't change God's plan. And it didn't change his purpose for them and the earth. God has carried through with his program, and it's not over yet. And therefore, we can stand on Philippians 1.6. We can be confident that he who has begun a good work will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Thank God. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful chapter, Lord. And Father, may that be our prayer that Isaiah prayed. In the very first sentence of the first verse, oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down. Bust through the clouds, bust through the heavens. And we see that in the great tribulation period when Jesus comes back because God is going to do that. The sky is going to roll back. The clouds are going to part and Jesus is going to be seen by all those on earth. God coming down to restore righteousness and mercy. To make all things new for all eternity. And that's what we're waiting for right now. For God to return. Father, help us to continue on, to hold on. To not give in, to not give up, to not stand down. But to stand up and to look up. Knowing that our redemption is drawing nigh. And if you're here tonight or you're watching we pray that if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ that you would make him your savior by receiving Christ. And if the Holy Spirit is tugging at your heart and you know you can see what's happening in this world. You can see It's destroying itself. And the only hope is in Jesus Christ, the Savior, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace. And if you want to be a part of that kingdom, his kingdom, you can only enter in through Jesus Christ, his son. If you recognize your need to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to say this prayer out loud. And you pray it. The same prayer to the Lord with all of your heart. Dear Jesus, 
Please forgive me for all of my sins. I confess to you, I am a sinner. I want to receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me now to follow you, to obey you, and to walk with you all the days of my life. And thank you, Lord, for dying for me, for saving me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer here tonight and you don't have a Bible, see myself, Pastor Tony, one of the ushers will be more than glad to give you a Bible. And again, we encourage you to, you know, if you live close here, to attend church here where we teach you the Word of God or uh, a, a church close to you. And, uh, but make sure they teach the Word of God, plain and simple, from Genesis to Revelation. God bless you guys.